Welcome to the North Shore Church audio podcast. To find out more information about North Shore Church, please visit us at mynsag.com. We hope you enjoyed today's message. It's good to see you here this morning. We love having you. How many of you know the name Paul Jesperson? Anybody know the name Paul Jesperson? A little over a week ago, the college basketball tournament started, March Madness. Many of you guys were filling out your office brackets and getting ready and choosing teams and and mascots that you've never, ever watched played in your entire life. It's this March Madness stuff. Well, Paul Jesperson, he's a senior guard that plays for the University of Northern Illinois, and his team was supposed to lose in the very first round of this big tournament. But in that first game, the unexpected happened. The teams were tied, and as the clock was winding down, Paul Jesperson heaved a shot from half court, and as the buzzer sounded, the ball banked off the backboard and went right through the hoop. And in one moment, Paul Jesperson goes from an unknown to a sports hero in this tournament. He was the talk of the tournament, the darling of the the day, and the UNI Panthers were on track this year to become the Cinderella story in this basketball tournament. A couple of days later, they were set to play Texas A&M, a team that was heavily favored against the UNI Panthers. And it seemed as though this dream season and that dream shot was going to continue as Paul Jesperson and the Panthers were leading Texas A&M by 12 points with 44 seconds left in the game. Did anybody see that game? Well, what happens when you're winning by 12 points with 44 seconds left in a game that has a 30-second shot clock? It means that you have won the game. The last 44 seconds was just a formality. The game, for all intents and purposes, was completely over. There was no possible way that the Panthers could lose, but in those final seconds, the unthinkable happened. In a strange series of events and sloppy plays, Texas A&M came back to tie the game and eventually beat UNI in double overtime. For the Panthers, this was the largest, or or for anybody, this was the largest comeback, or, or rather, this was the largest collapse in the final minute of any basketball game in NCAA history. So from the beginning of the college basketball universe until now. This was the worst collapse in the final minute that has ever, ever happened. It just so happened to be on the largest stage in one of the biggest tournaments with millions of eyes around the world watching. And Paul Jesperson went from hero to to zero in a span of about 48 hours. There are even some pro basketball players that were saying, if I was a Panther, if I was on that team, I would just hang up my shoes and I would never play basketball again. It was that bad. And in the larger scheme of things, who cares about this game and who cares about this tournament, really? It it, it won't matter. You won't remember any of this stuff a year from now. But I think Paul Jesperson and the UNI Panthers are a good illustration to a larger point that touches a little bit closer to home, and that's this, that life can turn on a dime. Things can change in a moment's notice. 
And on this day, and many of you know the theme, you know what we're talking about, you know what we're going to celebrate, we think about Jesus, and we think about how Jesus came riding into Jerusalem on, uh, on Palm Sunday, that triumphal entry, and, and how everybody was singing and celebrating and worshiping Jesus, and then on Good Friday, something changed. It was a dramatic shift. It was altogether different than what happened just a few days before. We can be going through life. We know this. We can be going through life and things are going really good. You'd be living your dreams. You're reaching your goals. People are happy. Your kids are happy and they're getting along. Amen? Come on. The things that you're worrying about in life are really small and really insignificant. Life is pretty good. Then in a moment, everything turns on you so fast it feels like it's giving you whiplash. How could things in my life, how could things in your life fall so hard and so fast? Maybe you were supposed to just go in for a regular checkup, but they found something and it turned into a diagnosis that changed your life. Maybe you were just going through a random Tuesday and you got a phone call that rocked your world and you knew that you would never be the same again. Maybe it was a death, maybe a discovery, a divorce, a scandal, Maybe it was honest, an honest mistake. Maybe it was just an accident. You were in the wrong place at the wrong time. Or it was a stupid decision that you consciously made and were involved in, but something happened and life changed. For some, in those moments, joy is lost. Hope was shattered. And you wonder, how am I ever going to make it through these dark days? How am I ever going to make it through these painful hours? How am I ever going to continue when there is no hope? in my life. Well, let me tell you why I love this Sunday, why we celebrate this Sunday and we make such a big deal about this Sunday. It's simple, because we have the greatest hope in the universe, and we put that on display on this Sunday. There is a guarantee of an empty grave, and that's proof that no matter how quickly life turns, there will always be hope. And let me just say, the reason we celebrate is not that the grave was always empty, but the reason we celebrate this morning is because the grave was filled, but life gave birth to death. Amen? Life came out of the grave, and it wasn't just that the grave was always empty, it was that the grave was filled, but is now empty. That means that there is no thing on this earth that can totally destroy and eliminate our hope. So what I want to do is I want to talk to you for the next few minutes about Jesus. And we're going to pray, we're going to sing a little bit, and then you're going to go home and you're going to eat as many deviled eggs as you can stomach. Okay, that's my plan anyway. It's our goal. <clears throat> you go home, you eat deviled eggs, and then you get to that point, you think, man, I should stop. You eat a couple more, Right? And then you think, well, maybe just one more. I believe that our physical bodies can endure so much more than we give them credit for. So let's push it today, okay? Come on. Come on. That's right. And so what we have here today, before the deviled eggs, is three scenes that I want you to consider. And there's a common thread that I believe ties these, th these three scenes together, and, and it's Wrapped up in one word, surrender. What you're going to see in these three scenes is surrender on display. 
And I want you to consider something. I want you to see something that you may not have considered before that I believe has the potential to produce more hope, more joy, more freedom, and more life in you than anything that you've ever experienced before. And so we're going to go through these scenes and we're just going to talk about them here for a little bit. The first scene that we're going to look at is the garden. I want you to consider what happened there in the garden. So after the Passover meal, Jesus and his disciples, you remember the Passover meal that Jesus um, uh, had that celebration with his disciples. They instituted the Lord's Supper. They, they really took the first communion there at, at, the, at the Passover meal. And then uh, Jesus prayed and they sang a hymn. And then Jesus led his disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane. And all of them minus Judas because Judas was out getting ready to betray Jesus. And so Jesus led the disciples to the garden and all of them followed along, still thinking and believing that Jesus was going to set up and establish an earthly reign, a political kingdom, a military kingdom, and an earthly kingdom, that, that, that Jesus was going to do something to make Israel great and Israel was going to reign and all the, the disciples there were going to have a special place in his physical kingdom. They were going to have positions of prominence and power and that's still what they were thinking as they were going to the garden. But I think it's very important for us to know and remember is that though that's what the disciples were thinking, Jesus knew exactly what was about to happen. It's important for us to know that none of this took Jesus by surprise. The cross, the, the floggings, the crown of thorns, none of that took Jesus by surprise. Jesus knew exactly what was about to transpire. Matthew chapter 26 verse 38 says this. Then Jesus said to the disciples, while they were there at the garden, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Basically, he's saying, stay here with me and pray. My soul is very sorrowful. The disciples didn't have any idea why his soul was very sorrowful. In their minds, things were going pretty good. And it says, and going a little further, Jesus fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible... Let this cup pass from me. The book of Luke tells us that in the garden, when Jesus was there by himself, in that moment, that there was so much anguish, there was so much tension that was building up inside of him, that his, his capillaries that, that fed the uh, sweat glands burst, the blood vessels that, sweat the sweat, that fed the sweat glands burst, and he began to sweat blood. There was so much anguish. There was so much tension. There was so much pressure inside of him that he began to sweat drops of blood. And oftentimes, because we have a little bit of an understanding of what Jesus was about to experience, and we've seen the movies and the pictures, and we've done the study about the cross and crucifixion and the floggings and the crown of thorns and everything, we uh, assume that it was the cross and it was the, the thought of the pain that he was about to experience that caused all the anguish, but, but I would suggest, or, or rather I believe that it wasn't the cross. I don't think it was the cross that caused Jesus the anguish. There's no real record of Jesus ever being fearful of the cross or in the moment Jesus um, being afraid of what was happening or trying to defend or run from the cross. I think that oftentimes we misinterpret Jesus' prayer, saying that he didn't want to endure 
the cross. I don't believe it was the cross that caused the anguish, but rather the cup that caused him the anguish. Let me explain what I mean by that. Jesus says, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. The cup was a well-known Old Testament symbol of divine wrath and punishment and judgment against sin. It's this Old Testament picture, and it symbolizes the judgment that God forces the wicked to drink. And the imagery is that um, God is forcing unrepentant sinners to drink of the consequences of their own actions and their own sin, to, to be overwhelmed with that sin that they loved and they pursued and they worship, to, to, to become sick on that thing that they loved to the point that it would ultimately destroy them. And, and so that cup of God's wrath is judgment, not against sinners, but against sin. And it's the sinners who do the sin so it falls on the person. It's God's judgment and his wrath towards sin. That sin that so many people so passionately and so aggressively pursue. It wasn't the cross, because Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, do not be afraid of those who can kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. If Jesus was afraid of the cross, then he would be going against the thing that he said. If Jesus was fearful of the Roman soldiers, if he was fearful of the nails, then he was actually going against his very own words. I don't believe it was the cross. I believe it was the cup that caused the anguish. It was the outpouring of divine wrath that Jesus would have to endure from his holy and heavenly Father. And look, Jesus knew the price. He knew the cost. He knew what he was getting himself into. Jesus knew what was happening. He was about to bear the full brunt of the divine fury against sin of all time. God was about to place our sin on Jesus and then punish him for it. God was about to take every lie, every um, wicked thought, every murder, every abuse, everything that wicked man could come up with to, to run and war against God and place all of that on Jesus and then hammer him with his divine fury and wrath against sin. This is an uncomfortable thought, and I understand that. But according to the word, punishment and a blood price is God's only rep response towards sin. And you think, man, that, that, that doesn't do anything for me. That just points to a God that's cruel. No, that points to a God that is holy. You think it shows that God is mean and angry. No, it shows that God is perfect. And the only thing that can be in the presence of God is perfection. And so God had to do something to deal with the sin issue because he loves you so much. He wants you in his presence, but you can't be in his presence with sin. And so God has to figure out a way to deal with the sin. And so Jesus came because he's infinitely stronger than you and me, and he's the only human alive that is able to bear the weight of sin. And Jesus wasn't running from his role as our Savior because at any point in the process, Scripture tells us that he could have called down 10,000 angels and just wiped out the people there that were doing this to him. Jesus wasn't running from his role as our Savior. 
But he understood in a way that we never will exactly what he was about to face. And so he prays, my father, if it, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. And he says, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Not what I want, but what you want. And then we see this scene play out, and Jesus leave, leaves his place of prayer, and he goes, and he finds the disciples sleeping. He wakes them up. He says, hey, guys, come on. Something big's about to happen. I need you guys to wake up and be praying. Verse 43 says, again, for the second time, he went away by himself and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, again, pointing back to the cup, he says, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Then he gets up again, he goes, he finds his disciples sleeping again. This time he just leaves them be. He goes back to his place of prayer. And he says, in verse 44, it says this, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Not my will, but yours. And again, Jesus says, not my will, but yours. And again, not my will, but yours. And it was in the garden that Jesus surrendered his will. And I want you to hear something this morning, whether you are a believer in this place or not, whether this is your very first time walking into this building or a church building ever, or whether you've been here a thousand times, God will bring you to a garden and he will at some point in your life ask you to surrender your will to his. He's gonna ask you to submit your dreams, your heart, your will to his. It's in the garden that the real battle is won and lost. It's in the garden right there where Jesus surrendered his will to the Father that Jesus solidified his victory. And know this, because God will take every single one of us to the garden and because it's so difficult for us to surrender our will to God, for many of us, the garden is going to be the place where we ensure our ultimate defeat. Because it's oftentimes that God brings us to the garden that we look at him and we say, not your will, but mine. Not your will, but mine. Not your will, but mine. And as we consider what God is asking us to do, we, we think, God, there's a better way. My way is better. My way is easier. My way is safer. God, my way is going to be a whole lot more fun. God, my way is going to be a lot less painful. Not your will, but mine be done. And it's in the garden that we often refuse to surrender our will to God. And it's in the garden that we forfeit God's power in our life. If you're a believer in this place, you've been a Christian for a long time and you're frustrated because you're not seeing and experiencing the power of God in your life, maybe it's time for you to go back to the garden and surrender your will to His. You surrender your will to His, you will see the power of God evident in your life. And I wonder, this morning, what is God asking you to surrender to Him? You may be here this morning, and right now is your garden moment. You feel like God is tugging at you. You feel like he's hammering at your chest. You feel like, oh my goodness, how does that pastor know what I'm going through? Why is he looking at me? Why is he talking to me? Look, it's not me. It's God calling you into the garden. It's God begging you to surrender your will to his because he has a plan for you and a purpose for you. You feel God tugging at you. Asking you to surrender, I want you to know that this is your moment. 
This is the moment where you could either solidify your victory or ensure your defeat. It's in the garden that the victory is won. You may be here this morning, you may be thinking, but Chris, what if God's will for me is difficult? What if it's hard? What if it's painful? I want you to know that it probably will be. It will be difficult, it will be hard, and it may be painful, but know this, God's will for you may include a cross, but it will never include a cup. Let me say that again. I want you to hear this. God's will for you may include a cross, but it doesn't include a cup. Here's why. Jesus took care of the cup on the cross. Jesus endured all the divine wrath that God poured out against sin so you and I don't have to. God's will for you is not wrath, but righteousness. And so when he asks you to surrender to his will, you are not surrendering to wrath. You are surrendering to victory. So the question is, will you surrender What are you holding on to that is more important than the victory that God promises? He's asking you to surrender. There in the garden, Jesus surrendered his will. The second scene that I want us to consider this morning is the cross. One of the most important questions in Christianity is when we consider the the wrongful conviction, the barbaric torture, and the murder of Jesus... The question that that we ask and that we have to wrestle with is who's to blame? Whose fault is it? Who's to blame? I don't know how things work in your home, but in my home with my kids, no matter who does anything wrong, it's always somebody else's fault. There's always somebody else to blame. If somebody is in the kitchen all by themselves and they spill a glass of milk, it's not their fault, it's somebody else's fault. Well, they shouldn't have had their Legos on the counter, right? Always somebody else's fault. If if somebody balls up their fists and punches their brother, it's not the person's fault who punched, it's the person's fault who got punched, right? Right? It's easy to blame somebody else. It's always somebody else's fault. My, my little three-year-old, she's we're having a hard time kind of keeping her in bed at night, and so she's getting out, and she's got all sorts of excuses. She's blaming all sorts of people. Well, Naomi had this in here, and I mean, it's just, it's just endless. And so sometimes she comes out, and we're like, get back in bed. And she says, I just want to tell you something. What? I love you. Can I have a kiss? What do you do, right? Little manipulator. I I know what you're doing. I do the same thing with Melissa, but it doesn't work as well. I don't get it. But she's been coming out, and then she she knows that if she comes out, she gets in trouble, so she starts hollering from her bed. And uh, the other night, she starts crying hysterically. She's just screaming and crying for Melissa, and Melissa goes in there, and And Melissa says, what is going on? What are you crying for? She says, I want to get my fingers. She sucks her fingers still. She likes to suck her fingers. She's so cute. She's three. She sucks her fingers. Who cares, right? Stop judging me, right? Stop. (laughs) We let her, too. Um, And so she sucks her fingers, and and that just kind of helps. She's always done that. And um, and, uh, Melissa's saying, what's going on? Just get your fingers then. And she said, Daddy said that if I suck my fingers, I'll suck them off, and then I'll look like this. And um, I did say that. That one may have been my fault. I am to blame, but on all the others, it's not my fault. 
But it's easy to blame other people. It's easy to point the fingers, and it's easy to find fault in others and blame them. So what I want to do, I want to read a couple of verses about how Jesus died, and, and then we're going to blame someone for his death. Matthew chapter 27, verse 27 says this, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him, an army of soldiers, Roman soldiers, for one man, Jesus, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a crown of thorns. And if you think in, in your mind this picture of the crown of thorns where they twist together and they got three-inch barbs hanging out of them, they put it on his head and put a reed in his hand like a ruler or a scepter that a king would have. They put a reed in his hand and kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. So these Roman soldiers, they put this pretend king's robe on him. They gave him a wooden scepter, and they put a wicked crown of thorns on his head. And then they kneeled before him and made fun of him and harassed him and bullied him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. When they were done with that, they stood up and they spit on him. They ripped that reed, that, that pretend ruling scepter out of his hand and then they beat him with it they hit him in the face and hit him in the head where the crown of thorns were and when they mocked him some more they stripped the robe off of his body put his own clothes back on him and led him away to be crucified they led him away to the place where they were going to put nails in his hands and in his feet that's what happened The truth is, it's a whole lot easier to place blame than take responsibility. So the question is, who's to blame for the cross? Who's to blame for what happened to Jesus? Well, we can blame Judas for betraying Jesus in the garden with a kiss, and we can put blame on him. We can blame the wicked religious Pharisees who plotted the assassination and the murder of Jesus. We could, blame, we could blame the disciples for abandoning Jesus who just moments before said, Jesus, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Even if it leads to my death, I will stand with you. But the moment things get tough, they run. We could blame them. We could blame the fickle crowds who a week before were shouting, King, King, and now they're shouting, Kill, Kill. We could blame Herod and Pilate for sentencing him to that death. We could blame the Romans, the ones who were beating him and punching him and ripping out his beard and spitting at him and, and the, the ones who drove the nails into his hands and his feet. We could even blame Adam and Eve, right? We could. If it wasn't for Adam and Eve, if it wasn't for them eating that fruit that God told them not to, then sin wouldn't have entered the world. And if sin wouldn't have entered the world, then death wouldn't have entered the world. Because we know that the moment sin came, it gave birth to death. Death was never the plan. But death was a consequence and a result of sin. So if Adam and Eve wouldn't have been stupid, right? Come on, how many of you guys have blamed Eve before? Come on, stupid Eve. Get your act together, man. Right? And so there's a lot of blame to go around. The reality is it's a lot easier to blame than to take responsibility. But here's the truth, and I need you to listen to me. You will never understand the beauty and the power of the cross unless you realize that you're to blame. 
You will never understand the beauty of what Jesus did until you realize that this is your fault. You're here this morning with your new Easter outfits and your Sunday smile. We're celebrating, we're rejoicing, but the reality is, as we look in the mirror, we realize that I'm to blame and you're to blame for the death of Jesus. It's your fault and it's mine. It's because we continually fall below God's standard of perfection. It's because we continually embrace sin when God is asking us to embrace righteousness. It's because we continually mess things up and God's standard is perfect. He says we got to deal with the sin issue. There's a lot of blame to go around. It's because we've sinned and it's because we've failed. And it was for our sake that he made him who knew no sin to become sin so that we could become the righteousness and perfection of God. And I know this Easter is supposed to be light and fun and full of pastel colors, but the reality is that Jesus died because you and I couldn't keep from sinning and because you and I couldn't get it right. And the wonder and the mystery of the cross is far beyond our ability to understand completely and to follow, and so we just have to submit humbly to it and say thank you. Because it was at the cross that Jesus surrendered his life. At the garden, he surrendered his will. At the cross, he surrendered his life. And make no mistake, nobody took Jesus' life. No Pharisee, no religious crazy, no Roman, no soldier took his life. Jesus surrendered his life because him and the Father had a plan to redeem you and me. Jesus surrendered his life because he loves you so much. In almost every area in the life of Jesus, we look at, we study, we're encouraged to follow Jesus, to make some sort of practical application, to apply what Jesus did to our life and to do it too. But when it comes to the cross, our Jesus, our King, and our Savior stands completely alone. Because all men will die because of sin. Look, Scripture tells us that death entered the world because of sin. Death is a result of sin. So we die because of sin. Jesus died for sin. We die because of sin. Jesus died for sin. Romans chapter 4 says this. He, Jesus, was delivered over to death for our sins. And he was raised to life for our justification. Jesus was beaten and the nails were driven through his hands and his feet. And he was hanging there in that brutal way, not to kill him quickly, but to prolong his death. That on the cross, the Romans figured out a way to put the nails through the, 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 these nerves that shoot fire through his entire body. And it wasn't to kill him, it was to let him die slowly. There was a lot easier ways, a lot more effective ways to kill him. They, they weren't trying to bleed him out. And, and how Jesus died on the cross was he suffocated. That on the cross, as you're hanging there, you can't breathe, and you have to pull yourself up on the weight of those nails to breathe out, and then you fall back in. You can suck the air in, but you can't push it out. And so as Jesus' muscles were cramping and atrophying, he had to pull himself up to breathe out, and he'd fall back down, and he'd start suffocating again. It was there at the end where Jesus found the strength to pull himself up one last time 
and declare, it is finished. Scripture says he breathed his last. He fell back down and he died. Not because he sinned. Not because he did anything wrong. Not because he messed up, but because we did. Worship team, please come. And it's at the cross that Jesus stands alone. It's at the cross that we have absolutely no ability to relate. Even the disciples who came after Jesus, who some of them were hung on a cross, they didn't bear the weight that Jesus did. They didn't experience it the same way that Jesus did. And so we come to the cross, and with gratitude we receive salvation. It's with gratitude that we embrace the sacrifice that our King and our Savior and our God made for us. And because you're to blame, it means that you're also given access to salvation. If you confess Him as your Savior, you claim Him as your Lord and your God, then the cross for you doesn't symbolize death, but eternal life. So Jesus surrendered his will at the garden, and Jesus surrendered his life at the cross. The third scene that I want you to consider this morning is the grave. Talk about the grave. We can't at all adequately address this day unless we talk about the grave, but there's something different about the grave, because the grave is so final, isn't it? Have you ever walked through a cemetery you're walking through, you see all of the tombstones and the plots there, you see um, many of them have the date of birth and the date of death, but some of them, they, they just have the date of birth, and, and uh, whether they took care of all their funeral arrangements beforehand, and they just wanted to do that so their kids didn't have to, or maybe a spouse died and, and they haven't yet, when, when there's not that death date, you know that there's still more to the story, there's still more to do, there's still more life to live, but, but when both dates are there, you have the date of birth and the date of death, you know that it's over. There's a brutal finality to the grave, because at the grave you can't go back. It's no more, it's done, it's over. At the grave there's no more I love you's, there's no more I'm sorry's. At the grave there's no more please forgive me's. At the grave, your chance to make amends or set things right, it's done. It's over. There's no more birthdays. There's no more anniversaries. There's no more celebrations. There's no more opportunities to make an impact in anything. There's no more lessons to give your kids. There is no more potential at the grave. And though you're here this morning, and I know you're still living, I know that many of you have experienced little deaths in many areas in your life because I've had conversations with you. I've heard your stories. I know your struggles. Some of you on a daily basis, you're, you're doing this, and, and your life, as you look through your life, is just a, 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 almost a cemetery, and you've erected these little tombstones all over the place, and you've stamped the death dates on all of them. And in these little areas, you're saying, there is no hope here. There is no potential here. There is no joy here. It's final. It's dead. It's in the grave. It's in the tomb. It's been sealed tight. There is no hope. There is no potential. Maybe you're here this morning and you feel so lonely that it just, it's eating at you. It's just hopeless. Say there's no potential. Perhaps you're fighting an addiction that you know you cannot win. 
So you've erected the tomb, you've sealed the grave. This is death in my life. There is no potential, there's no hope here. Maybe you're suffering from an illness that the doctors say is going to claim your life and you've already started living like there's no hope. Maybe you're in a relationship that's abusive and there's no hope for escape and so you've just erected your little tomb and you say, this is the way it is. I can't fight this. I can't deal with this anymore. Some of you are here this morning and because of a set of circumstances, you're afraid that you're never going to see your child again and, and hope is gone. The potential for that relationship has been completely eliminated. And you feel the hopelessness and the pain and though your heart is beating this morning, the grave is very real to you. You feel the despair and you know the finality of it. And when sin entered the world, death was given its power. Death was given certain rights and privileges. And the reason that so many of you feel this so real this morning is because death has begun to exercise its rights over you as a result of the sin that you have committed or the sin that you've encountered. But either way, death is beginning to exercise its rights and you feel like you're suffocating. You're trying to go on, but death is just overwhelming you. And on the cross, when Jesus said it is finished and he breathed his last breath, Death claimed its ultimate prize. The Savior, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God, death claimed its greatest victory on the cross. On the cross, death won the day. Claimed the life of Jesus because of sin. And Jesus died. He was laid in the grave for three days. For a period of time, all hope was lost. The Savior, the Messiah, Jesus, was dead. Some of you know what that grave feels like. You've been living in your grave for a lot longer than three days. Some of you have been there for three months, three years. Some of you have even been living in your grave or erecting your little, little graves for the last three decades. And you're thinking, there is no hope. There is no future. All is lost. My world, my hope, everything is gone. Everything has gone dark. But I want you to know something this morning. That when Jesus entered the grave, death got more than it could handle. That death was overwhelmed and death was overcome. And in that process of three days, something began to change. Hope was being restored. Jesus was coming alive. The grave was beginning to shake. The stone was starting to move. And the Jesus that we know and serve was being resurrected. North Shore, stand to your feet. Let's the stand. Let's celebrate. And let's give the Lord a hand clap. The stone was rolled away. His miraculous love did not be
Jesus surrendered his will at the garden. Jesus surrendered his life at the cross, but Jesus didn't surrender anything at the grave. It was death that surrendered its rights at the grave. Death lost its power. Death lost its ability. Hopelessness was destroyed at the grave. Death was destroyed at the grave. And 1 Corinthians says this, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable. For this mortal body must put on immortality. And when the perishable puts on imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because though he died, he did not stay dead. And though the tomb was full for three days, it's not full anymore. And hope reigns and life reigns and joy reigns and our eternity reigns because Jesus is alive. So this morning, you no matter what it is in your life, have access to hope because the grave lost its power and the grave had to surrender its rights. It's not dark anymore in there. Now life can throw a lot at us. Things can change in a moment. But the resurrection of Jesus has guaranteed that there will never be a moment in your life that you are without hope. Because Jesus is alive, because Jesus rose again, there is nothing that can create darkness inside of your life. Even death has lost its power in the life of a believer. And because Jesus rose again, we have hope. And because Jesus rose again, we know we are guaranteed that we will too when we place our faith and our trust inside of him. So we're going to do something just really quick. I can have you help me. Bow your heads and close your eyes all across this place. This is the most important part of this message this morning. Because there's some of you that for all intents and purposes, you're living inside of that grave. And that door is sealed and there is no light. There is no hope. There is no future for you. For some of you, you've not surrendered your life to Jesus. You've not surrendered your life to Him. You've not accepted the salvation of the cross. But today, you're ready. Today, you are ready to surrender your will. You're ready to surrender your life. You're ready to surrender your future to Jesus. And with every head bowed and every eye closed, there's privacy. Nobody's looking around. I want to ask you, are you ready to experience life? Are you ready to burst through that grave? Are you ready to surrender your life and your will to Jesus this morning? If that's you, again, every eye closed, would you just raise your hand if that's you? You're saying, I'm ready. I'm ready to surrender that to him. I'm ready to experience that newness. I'm ready to experience that life. I'm ready for more. I'm ready for my stone to burst open and for the power of Jesus to burst forth in my life. I'm ready for new life. Raise your hand up high. Now I'm going to ask you to take one more bold step. And listen, Jesus took a bold step coming out of the cross. I'm going to ask you to take one more bold step. 
Those of you who have your hands raised, would you step out of the aisle where you are and will you make your way down here? We're going to pray for you. Say, oh man, I didn't know you were going to ask me to come forward. Look, it's just that one step. Force your mind to convince your body to take this step because you start taking this step here this morning, it's going to be easier to take a step tomorrow for Jesus and next week for Jesus. It's going to be easier to take a step in front of your family and your friends for Jesus. You take this step here because we're here celebrating you. We're not judging you. Every single one of us have taken this step before and what we see in you is the grave being burst open. The scene that's playing out in your life is the exact scene that was playing out just a minute ago because your grave is coming open and life and life is bursting forth. And so this is what we do for you. We celebrate you and the decision that you're making this morning. We celebrate the life that we see inside of you. We celebrate the potential that God has for you. And so this is what we're going to do. Pastor Dan's going to begin to sing again. We're going to close in song and prayer, but there's others of you who may have already surrendered your life to Jesus, but you've lost your hope, and you need hope restored. Who is that? Any of you in here? You need hope restored? You need hope restored? You've surrendered your life, but you need hope. There are things in your life that you are just hopeless about. If that's you, we're going to ask you to come too as Pastor Dan begins to sing. You just need hope. You need the hope of the resurrection applied to certain areas of your life. You need hope restored. You need victory gained. That's you. Will you come? Will you come? And I just need hope. I just need hope. I just need hope. Altar team, we're going to ask our altar team to come and begin to pray with you. This first line, altar team, are the ones who came first. So let's just kind of make our way. As we prepare to close, will you just sing this with us? We're going to let God do what he wants to do down here at the altars. But if you're out there and you're comfortable, can we raise our hands in victory? Raise our hands in surrender and submission to our Father, our risen King. Power over us anymore. 
it has no claim to us anymore. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, there is hope for every part of your life. Now, Jesus, we ask that you would just fill up those of you who have responded for the very first time with your spirit. Fill them up with your spirit. Fill them up with your heart. Fill them up with your love. Fill them up with your anointing, Lord Jesus. Let them know that their life is never, ever going to be the same again. And Jesus, I pray for that everybody else, you restore hope, that you remove that hopelessness, that you remove the pain and the sting of death, because death has already lost its power. God, we're going to ask you to go with us today. Help us to be safe and enjoy the rest of the day as we celebrate this resurrection. Now, before we go, I want everybody who responded to that first one to look at me real quick. If you responded here to that first call, you raised your hands to that first one, you responded. I, I want to give you just a little bit of instruction real quick. Before you guys leave, we want your name. We, we got a book that we want to give you that's going to help you take some of those next steps. If you haven't already gotten that, please stay until we can get that to you because we want to help you move from the grave being open to you bursting forth in new life. We want to help you with that process. And so before you go, please stay so we can give one of those to you. Dear Jesus, go with us. Bless us and let us celebrate the power of the resurrection and let us operate in the power of the resurrection. We love you and we thank you. To you goes all the praise and the glory and the honor. You are so sweet, Jesus, and we love you. In your name we pray. Amen. Let's give the Lord a hand clap of praise this morning.